0: You can't run government if you're the prime minister and you can't have a confidential conversation with colleagues in the cabinet room if you're the prime minister of the United Kingdom. If that's going to leak out, it's going to be cabinet divided on. But you do actually need the debate. These are very, very difficult things that the intrusions of social media, some of it fostered by people inside government leaking stuff, which just adds to the lack of trust. It is very, very difficult. (music)
1: Welcome back to A Load of BS, the behavioural science podcast after a short summer breakaway. I hope you've all had time away from work and feel reasonably rested and energised for the challenges ahead. And talking of big challenges, my guest to kick off the autumn season of BS has made a career of facing and disentangling them at the heart of British government over many years. He is Sir Michael Barber, the man who Tony Blair appointed to create and then run his delivery unit. Now, Michael's heart is in education. He originally trained as a teacher and worked in schools both in Britain and Zimbabwe for many years before then working at the National Union for Teachers. Then in 1997, he joined the UK government to become the chief advisor on school standards and it was then... In 2001, at the beginning of Tony Blair's second term, Michael founded the PM's delivery unit in number 10, the first of its kind in the world and something which has since been replicated across the globe many times. With Michael at the helm on some of those occasions, I may add. As Michael himself says, if you can organise humans to solve problems in government, you can do it anywhere. So here's your primer on the art of deliverology. Why is delivery both a soap opera and a documentary? Why is buy-in so overrated? What excuses do ministers regularly throw up to resist change? And what Michael advised Boris Johnson on becoming PM in 2019? We're going to cover it all. Michael, welcome to A Load of B.S. I'm delighted you're here with me today. Thank you, Daniel. So look, we're going to talk about the art of delivery today, or should I call it by its more social science name deliverology?
0: You can call it deliverology. That was a term invented by the Treasury as a way of slightly mocking me, but gently and nicely when we started doing this, because there was a set of processes that were strongly associated with myself and the Tony Blair Delivery Unit. So they called it deliverology, but you can call it whatever you want.
1: Fair enough. Now, project and policy delivery that has become your mastermind of the last 20 years. But of course, your original heartland was and, and still remains education, where you've been all of teacher, uni leader, government advisor, private sector consultant, and as of last year, Chancellor of Exeter University. So there's no question of the height or breadth of your achievements. You talk in the middle of your book, How to Run a Government so that Citizens Benefit and Taxpayers Don't Go Crazy, about one of your favourite walks in England, Scarfell Pike. And it's a rather beautiful description as you include the instructions of A. Wainwright's Guide to the Lake District Mountains. And you then compare Wainwright's Wainwright's description of the ascent as a perfect representation of achieving any major goal in life. How so?
0: Yes, well, I strongly commend that walk to you. Anybody who, who wants to climb the Schofield Pike from Langdale uh, should follow the Wainwright guide. It's a long walk, but it's very beautiful. And he starts off along a valley, which is fairly flat. You're by a river, you're surrounded by high mountains. It's absolutely lovely. And you think, God, this is, this is a nice walk. And then you get to the end of that valley and you have to go up a very steep gully called Rossett Gill which is brutal. It's basically, you don't need ropes or anything, but it's really hard work on rough stone and so on. So that is a very good representation of many changes. You start off, the announcement's good, everybody loves you, and then suddenly you're trying to make them change things, it gets really hard. And then when you get to the top of the hard bit, you've still got a long, long way to go, and you you go, you you walk on, and there's a whole bit then when you think, well, where is this mountain? And am I ever going to get there? And you get past a couple of tarns, and it's all, it's all lovely countryside, but it's quite hard work. And then you reach a kind of summit, you think, well, this must be nearly there. And then you see there are two further summits with big dips between you and the actual summit. And if you're going to change a health service or change an education system or reform a university, that idea that you start off with something easy, then there's a really hard bit that shows you're serious. Then there's a long bit where you're going to stick at it, even though it's not that exciting. And then you think you're nearly there, and actually you're not nearly there at all. You've still got these two Big, so, there is actually a representation of big public sector change in my experience. And I originally used it in a, a speech I did each summer for the education system when we were doing the big literacy reforms in the late 1990s. And I've, I've used it occasionally since, and I've certainly done the walk since.
1: So, yes, yeah, so it feels like a very complete metaphor. But let's just go back then to the beginning of the delivery story. So in 2001, Tony Blair asked you to set up and run what was then very novel, his prime minister's delivery unit. So how did you come to become or come to be Mr. Delivery Unit?
0: It's a long story, but uh, to cut it short, in the mid-90s before Blair was prime minister, I worked with him and his team on the education policy. I remember the days of the speech on education, education, education. So we designed a lot of the education policy before Blair won in 1997 and then as 1997 loomed he and David Blunkett who was going to be the education secretary said to me will you come and make this policy that you've helped us design will you come and make it work and I leapt at the chance even though I was a professor and I had never made anything happen ever before that my alternative job was to go into number 10 and be the education advisor the prime minister but the idea that you'd actually really have to try and make it happen appealed to me a lot and it proved to be very difficult very rewarding ultimately, and a big learning experience. And by the end of that four years, but 2001 that you just mentioned, a lot had gone well. Some things had gone wrong, but a lot had gone well. Literacy performance, numeracy performance in primary schools were better. There were fewer failing schools. We'd intervened in some very bad local education authorities and sorted some of them out. Meanwhile, Blair was looking at what was happening in the home office and various other parts of the public sector and saying they need some of this discipline that. David Blunkett and Michael Barber have done in education. So I tell this story in one of my books, but I was meanwhile saying to the number 10 policy unit, you need to get on to making things happen, not just writing a policy. And so these two things came together. And Blair asked me to set up, I wrote him a blueprint before the 2001 election. And after they won that election, they said, will you come and set this up? And we, Neither he nor I knew that it was innovation in government, but it turned out it was.
1: Yeah, but having read your first excellent guide to delivery, the book I just mentioned, How to Run a Government, I mean, there's no question of the value of your work, but I am tempted to ask, if it is the role of the civil service to deliver the policies of the government of the day, then what on earth did policy delivery look like pre-2001?
0: Yes. Well, there are obviously some great examples. You can see, as I write about in how Toronto government, Macmillan delivering 300,000 houses a year in the early 50s. So there are examples of good delivery. But basically, a lot of the civil service does policy and kind of hopes that it will happen. And so, of course, some things do and some things don't. But there was an awful lot of talk, but no clarity about what it is you are trying to do. No clarity as what would count success. Lots of work on white papers and legislation and speeches and not enough work on the nuts and bolts of making sure this actually gets delivered. And when I talk about delivery, I mean you've changed the lives of citizens for the better in a visible way. So you really do have to wait less before you get somebody to see you to do your operation. Or primary school teachers are doing a better job teaching literacy and you as a parent can see your child learning. It. So it's got to be real. And that is Quite a hard test, actually. And so we took those delivery goals literally, which actually, by the way, in behavioral science, there's, I often say that there's nothing more powerful than a bold idea taken literally. If you really say, right, I am going to do that, what does it take? That's what we did. And that, that, that constant focus and this determination to really change the facts on the ground made a big difference.
1: So I think you answer my next question, which is I really wanted to address the basics, which is to understand what the role of a delivery unit is. I think you've sort of touched on that, but where then are the boundaries of its responsibility? Where are you starting and where do you sort of step back and let others pick up?
0: Stepping back isn't part of my rhetoric on this subject, but the job of the individual government departments to deliver, your job in the delivering is to make sure they do. And so... We design systems for that. So if you say you're going to reduce waiting times in A&E departments to four hours, we're going to measure that. We're going to check. We're going to do it ourselves. We're going to make sure you measure it so that you actually know, not just nationally, but hospital by hospital where it's happening. If you say you're going to cut car crime by 30%, we want to know how you're going to know if that's actually working. So set a goal. Make sure there's a way of measuring it. Make sure you understand the plan for making it happen. And the plan needs three elements. One is... actions you're going to take and who's going to take them, the deadlines. The second is the trajectory. So if you do these things that are in your plan, how will the data change between where it is now and where your target is? And thirdly, what is the delivery chain? You're sitting in Whitehall in the Home Office or the Education Department. What connects you and your Secretary of State to a police officer on the front line or a nurse in an A&E department? What are all the connections in the delivery chain that will enable you to help her or him at the front line, change what they do in a way that enables them to deliver the outcome. So you have to map out the delivery chain. So you've got a goal and you've got your data, and then you've got those three elements of a plan. And then you've got to build routines that check these things are happening. You know, because you're a very well-informed person and you read the papers, governments are constantly overwhelmed by crises. So what part of government will keep focused on the priorities as crises occur? And I'm collecting examples of this. In my own personal experience, about three months after the delivery, and it was set up it was September the 11th, 2001. The world changed on its axis. Blair is there in his office, surrounded by media people, spies, foreign office people, defense people, transport people, airline people you name it, media. They're all there clamoring around him. And I'm walking past the office, and I think I came to number 10 to help the Prime Minister. I should join in. But then I stop without going into the scrum around him, and I say to myself, no. He's got more advice than he needs already. Just look at that. What he needs me to do is keep with the priorities that we set in three months ago in June. Just keep the show on the road. I said to him soon after, I'm just going to keep doing. I'm not going to be distracted by this. You're bound to be. You have to do what you have to do. But I am going to be, un- you're going to be unable to shift me from focus on these things. And that's what we did. And that makes a big difference if you're a prime minister and you're elsewhere in the world. And you Wake up in the night and think, What's happening on our health reforms? You think, Oh, it's okay because Michael and his team are just doing that.
1: So, your point there is that you know crises come and go, and you know, your unit is not to be distracted by them. Going to keep to your agenda, stick with the priorities,
0: yeah, and really persist with that. And then build into the prime minister's time regular reviews we call them stock takes of progress on the key priorities. So, I built 20-something meetings a year into his diary of one hour each. That's 24 meetings, six on health, six on education, six on crime and stuff, six on transport. 24 one-hour meetings a year. Let's say he has to spend an hour preparing for each of those. 50 hours a year to keep your show on the road is a really good deal. One hour a week.
1: Good use of time. And building on that, you defined your task with Blair as having responsibility for bringing the dull, the boring and the predictable to the heart of government. So does boring government always function better? Is it is it better than radical government? Or maybe the two uh, can hang together?
0: Yeah, not only can they hang together, they have to. So to do radical things, you have to have boring things like routines and people who, who love graphs and data collectors and analysis. And you have to have people who Even though there's something really interesting being discussed for the future, they can say, no, I'm not doing that because I've still got this to do. So that sense of relentless focus and being persistent and sometimes boring is really important. If you train for a marathon, I've trained for a half marathon and run a half marathon. It is quite boring. There's some days when I don't want to go and run 10K or 15K, but I do do it and I do find it boring. But I know I can only do the the ultimate half marathon if I do do the boring bits. There are boring bits in everything. And they're not in opposition to radical. They're part of enabling radical.
1: Yeah, it's a succession of small steps, which gets you to your medium-term goal, I think. Something like that.
0: Yes, but also plan small steps and then the ability to review whether the steps are actually working in close to real time and if they're not, adjust what you're doing. So that is actually fascinating when you, you run into a problem you didn't anticipate and you can bang your head on a brick wall or you can give up or what I'm recommending is find a way of solving it. And if that first solution doesn't work, try something else. But if the goal was important, keep at it.
1: One of the other pictures you paint, which rather tickled me, was that you say that delivery is a soap opera as well as a documentary. What do you mean by that?
0: Well, in the end, and behavioural scientists know this, any big change program is revolves around a lot of human beings who are unpredictable, have competing interests. All of us have our own weaknesses and flaws, and you have to work your way. Through that, I was employing 30 or so relatively young, very talented people, some who've come in from outside and lots of them who are civil servants, and I'm sending them to meet with senior civil servants, many of whom are old enough to be their parents and have been around a long time. They've got to find a way of managing their way through that soap opera and being influential. So we did very, very explicitly training for people in how to build relationships, how to negotiate, really thoughtful We spent lots of time, I spent time, as did my senior colleagues, with young people saying, right, you've got a meeting with that permanent secretary. Let's spend an hour going through how the conversation might go, how you prepare for that, if this eventuality or that eventuality, how are you going to manage your way through it? And then there were some basic rules, like if you have a meeting with a senior person, finish it early. Most people think if they get a meeting with a minister the longer they can make it, the more successful it was. It's the the exact opposite is true. If you drag it out, the next time you want to go and see them, they're going to say no. If they've got an hour-long meeting and you finish in 45 and they can like, get a cup of coffee or watch a bit of news on television or talk to their private office, they will love you and you can go back next time. So finish meetings early. Think what you're going to say. If there are five people in the room, you better have a good reason for talking for more than 20% of the time. You know, really some basic rules of how you get influence be thoughtful. If you join in a meeting, 30 minutes into a meeting or 40 minutes into a meeting, you haven't yet contributed and then you decide to contribute. As you introduce whatever it is you want to say, remember to name check two or three people who've contributed in the last 40 minutes and you say, as Alan was saying, or as Liza was saying, because then by the time you get to your point, they're already on your side. So it's a soap opera and there are skills that are very, very explicit that can help you be influential. And people did notice that we were different.
1: I suspect that kind of training would be hugely valuable in many other walks of corporate life. But, I mean, from my experience, it's non-existent. You learn as you go, but that's really insightful. After the event, it's it's sort of obvious. I mean, everyone loves to be given five or ten minutes back of their hour and so forth.
0: I've seen senior people in consultancies who they've just met a minister and they come back and I say, how did it go? And they said, well, we had only had half an hour, but we were there for an hour. And I'm thinking... Probably went wrong because most politicians are very polite. So if somebody from outside comes into their room, they're not going to say, "Right, might be my time's up, sort of off." They don't do that. I mean, if you keep taking time, they generally will be polite. Sometimes I'll have somebody from the private office will come in and sort of not. The measure is whether you've landed the message and whether you can, they want to see you again.
1: On the subject of people politics, one of the things you talk about a lot is the importance of team play, of course, in successful delivery. And you refer in the book a number of times to the importance of a guiding coalition. So what does that look like in a good scenario?
0: Yes. And I should, as I do in the book, acknowledge on this podcast that that is a phrase used by John Cotter, the Harvard leadership guru. I want to acknowledge the the source of it. But what it looks like in my experience in government is the five to 10 people, seven or eight people, that kind of number, who are the most influential in ensuring whether or not a policy is going to get implemented and knowing who they are and Reaching a point where they share a view of what the goal is, what the plan for getting to the goal is, what the likely challenges are, and what the key messages are as the policy is implemented, and how those messages change. So they don't have to. But they don't have to spend lots of time in meetings. But if they're all aligned in the way that I've just described, you can make progress much faster. If they're slightly out of kilter, you run into lots of minor conflicts that sometimes can become big conflicts. And it is only five to 10 people that you really need to line up. So at the beginning of this conversation, we talked about primary school literacy in the David Blunkett era. So David Blunkett, myself, his special advisor who dealt with the media, Connor Ryan, David Miliband, who at that point was Tony Blair's head of policy in Number 10, Tony Blair himself, the Minister of State, Esther Morris. Those people are aligned. And for a long time, the chief inspector of schools, Chris Woodhead, was also aligned with that, and we could make progress. And then later, Chris detached himself a bit, and he still liked the policy, but he didn't He didn't think he had detail. He didn't like the way we were doing it and he left, but it didn't stop the thing moving on. But the guiding coalition was absolutely fundamental. So if Connor briefed the Times editorial writer, and if I spoke to a conference, of head teachers, and David Blunkett answered a question in Parliament, we'd all say exactly the same thing without having to coordinate, because we just knew.
1: The time saving, the efficiency of that coalition when it works smoothly must be enormous when you add up the number of briefings and media conversations and so on that you're making throughout a year.
0: That's exactly right. And also, you, so in that particular policy, literally in primary school, it was my job. I was the key orchestrator of that. It's my job to make sure the other members of the guiding coalition know if we're going to hit a rocky patch. I
1: mean, guiding coalition aside, I mean, your work is inevitably shifting the status quo. So, how do you? win over skeptics and manage their fear of change and outside influence and interference. I mean, I'm thinking of people, you've got people in the treasury, you've got cabinet ministers, you've got the public at large even.
0: Yeah. And and obviously the public sector workforces. So yes, this is a absolutely critical part of getting anything done. And there are several levels of it. The first is to try and anticipate how that will feel for a given population of people. So if you're trying to change the way primary teachers teach reading and writing. You can try and think, how will they feel when a government starts this? This is how I thought about it back then. They're going to say, I don't think the government has any role in telling us how to teach reading and writing. Who the hell do they think they are? That's going to be their starting point. But then you're going to make sure that the training is really good and they all attend it. And so then the second thing they'll say after a few months is, I still don't think they should tell us how to teach reading and writing, but the training's brilliant. And then the third thing is, because now they're going to start trying it, because you've got the head teachers lined up as well, and the head teachers are going to be held accountable for their results. And now the primary teachers are starting to use it in their classroom. And the third thing they're going to say is, Well, I have to admit it's actually beginning to work in my classroom. And then the fourth thing they're going to say is, I wish they'd told us to do this years ago. Now that turned out to be very optimistic, but do you see what I mean? So that's one way is think through the messaging. The second thing is, I don't know how many now, but back then there were about 190,000 primary teachers, probably roughly a similar number. There'll be a small number, maybe a few thousand who suddenly think, wow, I'm really glad the government's doing this. This is absolutely fantastic stuff. I'm a big enthusiast. I was involved in one of the pilot programs. This is brilliant. And what you want those people to do is to be criticizing you for not going fast enough. So you want them to be the pull factor. At the other end of the bell curve, there'll be a small number of people who, whatever you do, are just going to hate you. And for those, you can acknowledge them, but don't get dragged into a big public row with them. Just do whatever you have to do, but don't spend a lot of time on it and don't get into a yelling match or a mud wrestle with them because that's what they want. And then the people in the middle of the bell curve will be thinking, this government doesn't know what it's doing, or a plague on both their houses. So you've got those two extremes. And then in the middle, there are a whole lot of people who think some of them will will come sooner than others. You can call them the early adopters. Those people will... If the training is really good and they try it out and it works, I say, actually, you know, I'm an open-minded kind of person. This is good. My head teacher wants me to do it. I'll do it. And then the rest, the more sceptical, big chunk, are thinking, well, I've never really wanted to do this, but it does look like they are actually going to make it happen and the training has been good, so reluctantly I'll go along with it and it'll help me if I move to another school because they'll be doing it, uh, so I better do it. And then... After a while, they're all doing it. That's, so you have to think about the segmenting and the time, the, the sequencing.
1: And, and ideally, then you want to create a kind of flywheel effect, a self-serving momentum, if you like. I mean, of course, we touched on earlier that, you know, exerting influence is, of course, not just winning over the PM goes without saying. It's about how you influence and exert pressure to all links in a chain. In yeah. the education, of course, you've yeah. got the PM, you've got the department ministers, you've got trade bodies, you've got regional people, you've got head teachers, teachers themselves and so on. So when you really break it down, it's far more complex than one might think. Yeah,
0: it is. And you, you have to literally, at the cabinet minister level, you have to think very specifically about each individual. Now, Blair had made an education speech and primary literacy was the first test of that. And he knew that I was responsible, obviously, through David Blunkett. And David and I wanted to make sure that he didn't just come to us when something went wrong, which was bound to happen, but also that we kept him informed, not just on literacy, but in, in education. So we invented the idea of number 10 having stock takes because we wanted to build regular slots into Blair's diary. So every six, eight weeks, we were going there. So we, from the education department, invented the idea of a routine stock take, which then in the number 10 delivery unit, I translated into all the priorities. It was really important. And Blair never went very long without knowing what was going on. Whereas in other policy areas, he'd approve a white paper or a law would go through parliament. And then he'd see somebody in the paper criticising it and he'd summon the Secretary of State and saying, what's this? And that's crisis. I call that government by spasm. And it's not effective.
1: On this subject of, you know, exerting influence and winning people over. One of the things you said which really fascinated me and challenged my own thinking was you said that buy-in is overrated. It's a myth. Because despite this idea is something of a conventional wisdom of exerting influence, it made me think with my behavioral science hat on that often, you know, behavior change often precedes an attitude change. So I suppose, therefore, can be easier to change a behavior than a fundamental attitude. Because, of course, you then go on to say that, actually exerting influences about getting people to try something yes. instead of trying to change their beliefs. So expand on why you feel that this concept of buy-in is so very overrated.
0: It's a really important point. And it's not that you don't want buy in it's that you don't need it at the beginning. And if you implement well, as I've just been talking about, buy-in will come over time. If you're in government, on a big radical change, you will never get everybody lined up before you even start on the change you want to make. Even if you were Pericles, you couldn't do it. so you have to get started and you're going to persuade people by doing it. Obviously you've got to have the rhetoric and you've got to have the all the levels of communication, not just the rhetoric and the media but the other levels of communication and if you're asking people to change what they do all day, like a police officer is going to police differently or an A and e nurse is going to work differently, you have to enable them to do that. So I always talk about the combination of pressure for change which will come from accountability properly designed. And the support for change will, will say, right, you're going to be under pressure to make this change. And here's the support to enable you to do that. That might be training, it might be information, it might be other forms of support, it might be materials. But you have to, at any given moment, any point in the delivery chain, I was talking about earlier, have you got the right combination of pressure and support to make people change? And if you get that right and persist with it, what you get in my lexicon is irreversibility. You get to a point where the structure of the system has changed. So it's hard to go back to how it was, where the culture has changed, so people don't want to go back, and where the results are different, so people can see that the new is better than the old. If you get those three things in place, the culture, the structure, the culture, and the results, then after a while you think you've got irreversibility, so nobody will want to go back, or hardly anybody will want to go back. The small group of critics will still be there, but they'll be sort of crying in the corner.
1: Why do you think irreversibility is so hard to come by?
0: Well, there's lots of reasons. One is doing what I've just said is difficult. Secondly, you have to persist over a period of time and the world changes around you and some governments, politicians, officials lose the heart to keep doing the difficult thing. There's another bit we haven't talked about in this, which often when you get started, there's a kind of implementation dip, it gets hard. So it's the end of Mickledon when you got up gill It's really hard and there's an implementation dip and you have to be ready for that. And if you don't have the leadership to take you through the implementation, you just stay in it. And then the politics says, well, that didn't work, let's do something else.
1: Yeah, there was a quotation I really liked in the book. You quote the American historian Barbara Tuchman who wrote the book The March of Folly from Troy to Vietnam, and I'll quote it back to you. She says, mankind, it seems, makes a poorer performance of government than of almost any other human activity. I mean, why do you think that's so? I mean, of course, thorny problem-solving is just that. Of course, these are complex things, but is there something about government which makes it just a far harder place to get stuff done?
0: I think it is a hard place to get stuff done because, after all, if you think about government, if you go back to very first principles, why did human societies invent politics? Because there are decisions to be made about clashes of value, priority, and resource. Uh, So we invented politics, and then we invented government to implement what the politics has come up with so already the very definitions of these things they're difficult it's not like a business even a complicated business if something isn't working you just sell it or you can close it down and then you carry on doing what you do but government you can't do that so it is genuinely difficult but it's also that's what I think is I and mean obviously I'm biased that the beauty of teleology, it's also fundamentally simple what are you trying to do how are you trying to do it how will you know whether you're on track? If you're not on track, what are you going to do about it? And can you build a bit of the central government that can help you do those things? It's very, very simple. And you need that because government is so complicated that you need people who will simplify and just keep you focused on those things. But it is genuinely hard. And there are, you know, there are legacy things and things left over and the politicians are slugging it out in public with the opposition, with other bits of politics, with the critics in the public services. So it is genuinely hard. And the, the media intrusion in in government and politics these days is massive. I'm not against it. I'm in favour of free media and all that. But it does add a huge demand on politicians.
1: And a world away, by the way, from when you started 20 years ago, that level of scrutiny through technology, social media means that level of scrutiny is another level of intensity higher than when you were yes. part of it.
0: It's true. And it's absolutely true. And if you go back another generation, television was a big innovation. There's a brilliant bit in one of Peter Hennessy's books about the role of prime minister where he's got an interview, a verbatim interview of Clement Attlee in 1950 calling the election for elections in 1950 and 51. And he goes to the BBC to do an interview and the interviewer says, are you going to have a, an election? Yes. And he says, yes, we've decided we will have an election. It's going to be on this date. And then the interviewer says, and... What will your platform be for the elections? And he says, we haven't decided yet. I'm going back to the office to discuss that with my colleagues. And you just can't imagine this kind of conversation. Right. But, you know, everybody knows he was a good prime minister. So the media demands, if you go look at 19th century politicians, they're all worrying about the press and the 1930s and all of that. But it's got more and more intrusive.
1: It's, a, it's sad and it's a, maybe it's a chicken and egg argument that politicians are so fearful of getting caught out. The scrutiny is such that... They resist transparency for fudge and sludge. And so maybe the media has to blame itself in part for sort of disallowing that kind of honesty, because obviously any politician would get slaughtered for that. If you know your your view on your position on Brexit is not 100% clear, that's not good enough.
0: It is very difficult. and There are a few paradoxes in modern government that very rarely get spelled out. So let me spell out two of them, one not relevant to your question, but the other one directly related to it. So in the security services, the trade is in secrets, obviously. The paradox is that the secret is only useful when you share it. And so it's not a secret anymore. So that's at the heart of everything to do with that. And then the one that's directly around to you is everybody is in favor of transparency, but everybody's in favor of privacy as well. Where these two things meet, there's a difficult thing. You can't run government. If you're the prime minister and you can't have a confidential conversation with colleagues in the cabinet room, if you're the prime minister of the United Kingdom. If you can't have a confidential conversation where you take different views and say, well, should we do this or what about that? And what do you think? And what do you think? Everybody puts their view in. If that's going to leak out, it's going to be cabinet divided on. But you do actually need the debate. These are very, very difficult things that the intrusions of social media, some of it fostered by people inside government leaking stuff, which just adds to the lack of trust. It is very, very difficult.
1: And in parallel, this is why recent civil service leaks are so dangerous, because it puts the whole system at risk.
0: Yes. And if you're going to a meeting with somebody in some part of government, and you think that your view might be leaked by somebody in that room, you're not going to say what you think. You're going to find a way of, if you think it's important, saying it outside the meeting before you go in, whatever. It is really difficult. And when you get to that level of dysfunctionality, it makes decision making very hard indeed.
1: Going back to your point about simplicity, of course, it's sort of paradoxical because the advice, the mantras, the guiding delivery principles that successful leaders espouse, some of whom you mention in the book, like Blair Eisenhower or Dalton McGinty, who was the former leader of Ontario, they're really simple. They're often obvious, right? But nevertheless, so many governments fail to follow common sense. And we've touched on why so many problems seem to spiral out of control frequently in government. But it is noteworthy that despite the simplicity of all the guidelines, so many policy units fail to deliver.
0: It is. That's right. That is an irony. And it's a problem for everybody in democracies because it's fundamental to democracy that governments say what they're going to try and do. If they get elected, then try and do it. And it's much better for democracy if they succeed. It's not just good for that government. It's good for democracy because then people have faith that this system can actually work. When the reverse is true, people's faith, not just in a particular leader or a particular government, but the institutions of democracy begin to fade. And we've seen that around the world a lot in the last decade or so. So it is really important to get that right. And it is conceptually simple, but it's very difficult to apply the simplicity with the discipline that's required to make it happen. Although it's simple, it's not easy.
1: Well, unfortunately, people are at the heart of it. (laughs) And perhaps there's something there. Human beings are rather quirky, irrational, illogical, and absurd and emotional at times. And that probably has a little something to do with it.
0: Yes, and the unpredictability of how people are going to react and all of that is very important. And going back to responding to that question and other points you made, if you're in government trying to make something happen in a big public service, you do need to be in touch with the front line. It's not enough just to track the data and sit in Whitehall. You've got to spend time in a hospital or with police officers or whatever service it is, and really try and understand how people are thinking because otherwise, A, you look detached, and B, you don't really know what's going on. So that, to me, we, we always say, go to the front line.
1: Tell me, what are the typical excuses that ministers push at you when you confront them with a problem?
0: Well, and I'm talking about around the world, not just Britain, by the way. One is, we're already doing it. The other is, it's impossible. And sometimes they say both. It's impossible and we're already doing it. Or it's not the right time. Or couldn't we do a pilot study? Or in the old days in Britain, maybe we could try it out in Scotland first. All these reasons for why you can't do that now. Not just ministers, but often officials. Because change is very hard work and it's demanding and it puts you under pressure. But that's, you know, when the world needs it. There are times in politics when things are generally going well and managing the status quo is okay, but we're not in an era like that now anywhere in the world.
1: So as a fun thought experiment and knowing what we know of the man, how would you have advised the incoming Boris Johnson in 2019 if he called you up and asked for help implementing policy? And secondarily, do you think you would have succeeded?
0: Well, for just for the record, I did speak to Boris Johnson ah. at the end of 2020. And, and this is on the public record, I did spend some time in the first half of 2021 helping him set up. His basic the agenda he asked me to work on was I want to help him set up for him what had worked for Tony Blair. So we did do that. And he did set some goals. And they are there. And there is a delivery function. And it's actually proving its worth, actually, through a period when he's been under pressure for all kinds of things, nothing to do with the delivery agenda. But the woman who is leading that, uh, Emily Lawson, has done a brilliant job of keeping the delivery agenda as far as possible in those very difficult circumstances on that show on the road. So I would have said to him what I did say, which is, are you clear about what you're trying to do, what your priorities are? Have you got a system for doing it? Can you get the ministers aligned around this? And then can you build a function that whatever happens to you will keep driving these things ahead?
1: Interesting, because I suppose I didn't know that. I suppose it reflects that delivery, or I suppose indeed politics in general can be a rather thankless place to be, because even when you're doing very good things in the background, few are willing perhaps to reward you with the praise that you might deserve, especially the media.
0: And you also you have to recognise, I, I don't want to add to that Boris Johnson has been dealing with, but he, in addition to having a delivery agenda, he was dealing with a pandemic, which nobody anticipated. Then there was a war in Ukraine. And then On things, nothing to do with that core set of agendas. You've got to do your job as prime minister. So he's got his delivery agenda, he's got his pandemic, and he's got then the conflict in Ukraine. But there are other small things that caused him ultimately fatal damage around the parties and vote on about Owen Paterson, where he got them to vote one way one evening and then reverse his position. In sport, you'd call those unforced errors. So going back to the delivery agenda... And I was lucky to work for a government in a period of economic growth with a brilliant prime minister, and we had our distractions. But the team around him managed the small things incredibly well. So they didn't, on the occasion they did, but mostly they didn't get in the way of getting the delivery agenda. So any incoming prime minister, you've got to remember, and these are words I regularly use with political leaders, you've got to manage the big things and you've got to manage the small things.
1: I mean, do you think that would be true to say that then if you can successfully launch and deliver government projects, you can surely do it anywhere.
0: Launch them is easy. Deliver them them rather than, let's say. There's a whole bit in the book about, as you've read, about, about how you do the launch of something. You can do it with a big fanfare or you can do it very, very quietly and then only start talking about when it's working. But yes, if you can deliver big change in government, you can deliver it anywhere. I do believe that, including elite sport and business.
1: With so much more to say, I'm going to conclude with a question really about the next frontier for delivery. You say at the end of the book that the science of delivery itself is still in its infancy. So what innovations have we seen in delivery in the six years since you published the book? And perhaps where is the next frontier?
0: Well, there's a huge agenda that How Toronto government does refer to it, but the huge general where there's been massive strengthening and uh, increasing capacity is in the ability to gather and analyze and use real-time data. That's dramatically transformed since my time in the Blair administration. The risk now is not having data, it's drowning in it. So bringing clarity to that is really important. So in Punjab, Pakistan, we were getting every single child who was vaccinated, the child was photographed and the photograph went straight to a computer-in-law. So we've got a perfect map of where every child who's been vaccinated is, and then we can send the vaccinators to the gaps. So that kind of ability to get real-time data are very, very cheap now and very good. So that's one thing. The second thing is the use of technology in actual solutions. So in the anti-poverty program in Pakistan, It's a really well-designed program led by a wonderful woman called Sanya Nishtar. The conditional cash transfers, or the unconditional cash transfers, which they had to expand during the COVID crisis, used to go to a bank and then you could either go to a bank or you could go to a little kiosk and get your money. But the room for inefficiency and corruption, that was huge. Now it can go straight to a mobile phone. And if you don't have a mobile phone, it can go to a trusted bank, which has won a contract. And so you could get these payments very rapidly to the woman of the family. They were doing that to 16 million people every week or month. And each mother is probably part of a family of five. So you're influencing 80 to 100 million people. That is absolutely fantastic. And it it was technologically undoable until recently. So those kinds of things are huge. If you think about crime, automatic number plate recognition, facial recognition, all of these These things have implications for human rights, of course, but these technological developments are changing the ability to deliver and to deliver effectively.
1: On that note, Michael, shall we dive into some quick fire before we wrap up? Go for it. Great. Let's do it. What's the kindest thing anyone's ever done for you?
0: Beautiful question. So I got married on the 1st of May 1982, and we had a two-day honeymoon in Bath. So we got from... Reading station, which is where we dropped off after the wedding. We got to Bath and we had a wander around before we were going to go out for dinner. And somewhere along that walk, I lost my wallet. This was a days when some cash and a card to prove your check was absolutely essential. So I thought the entire honeymoon was going to melt down because I hadn't got any money. And obviously, it was my job to pay. So, in desperation, my very new wife and I went to the police stations, reported the loss of this thing. And the policeman got a wallet from under the desk and said, Somebody handed this in about half an hour ago, and all the cash was there, everything was there. That's a pretty kind thing.
1: Yeah. Gives you faith in humanity. (laughs) Makes you feel good. Yeah. Great. What's your most powerful memory?
0: There are moments that are truly spectacular. Standing at about 14,000 feet, looking at the summit of Annapurna early in the morning. Absolutely incredible. There are moments of absolutely just where you just completely evolved. like my older two daughters I adopted my youngest daughter was born in Zimbabwe in a hospital and the children weren't allowed to be on the birth and I was there on the birth and then the nurses said right I'm just going to sort things out and they sat me in a bath chair just outside the ward and I can remember sitting there thinking my whole world has completely transformed in this moment so the, there are these things that you remember
1: Tell us something interesting about yourself most people don't know.
0: They might not know that I cycled over the Alps to buy a coffee machine. <laughs> that's pretty good. And I love good coffee and did back then. That was a long time ago, especially with a friend. We cycled over to buy a coffee machine in Italy because it was the only place to buy a coffee machine in those days.
1: I presume you didn't attach it to the bike on the way down. No, that's no. right. <laughs> okay, right. The final few questions get rather easier. Which book do you gift most regularly?
0: Well, I give books to children and Winnie the Pooh, I give a lot. And then of the books that I, of novels I really like, there's a book by a guy called Chaim Potok called My Name is Asha Lev. It's an absolutely brilliant book about genius and families and everything. It's incredible. What's your desert island music? If I can only have one, obviously, based on the the Desert Island discs, you get eight. But I would probably either take one of the longer Bob Dylan songs or Rachmaninoff's second piano concerto.
1: There are no rules in this version of the game, so you you can have anything you like. It's just a prompt to know what kind of music you like. And finally, Michael, winding down away from work, how do you spend your time? I might might have an inkling from one of the two of the things that you've mentioned in terms of outdoor pursuits.
0: I have had phases of riding my bike, but actually probably the single most common thing that I do to wind down is read history books.
1: For example, anything that you'd recommend on your bedside table currently?
0: Yeah, well, I'm in the middle of a brilliant biography of Philip II of Spain, who is actually a model of how not to get things done because he doesn't prioritize. He was a clever and talented man in many, many ways, but he didn't get things done.
1: Talk about him in the book, if I'm not mistaken.
0: Yeah, well, actually, you quoted Barbara Tuchman because she, she writes about that. It's a 2014 biography by a brilliant historian called Jeffrey Parker, whose work I love.
1: Fantastic. And with that, Michael, let me thank you enormously for sharing your experiences and knowledge with us today. I can't think of many more complex and multifarious environments than government to solve thorny problems and implement rigorous processes. It's a world full of difficult people, many moving and changing parts, archaic processes, and intense global scrutiny. So I think you are surely scaling the Everest of problem solving, let alone Scarfell Pike, and how our new government, I think, could do with your wisdom and intellectual clarity this year, because we face a 1970s-like economic stagnation and so much geopolitical uncertainty. So, Michael, thank you hugely for joining me.
0: Yes. Well, look, it's it's been a pleasure and I've really enjoyed the conversation. And thank you for paying such careful attention to my work. And I want to say two things in response to your last point. One is there are lots of brilliant good, committed people in government among the officials and among the politicians across the political spectrum. And they don't get written about much, but they're true unsung heroes of not just this country, but many countries.
1: I think, by the way, to that point, Michael, one of the things that your book does reveal is that very point. And I've always sensed, despite the media battles and the news that we read, And the criticism that politicians face is that most of them go into the House of Commons or the Civil Service with the very best of intentions and some not, of course, and sometimes circumstances get in the way. But I think your point is very well made and few of us realise how damn difficult it is.
0: Yes, I think that's fair. Thanks very much for your time.
1: Thank you. That brings us to the end of the show. While not overt, there's lots of behavioural science going on here creating repeatable routines fear of and resistance to change influence and persuading intransigent individuals a great part of michael's work after all is understanding people with all their biases and preconceptions and then reorganizing them and you know talking of influence and persuasion i look forward to chatting with you next week when i welcome robert cialdini's great disciple friend and co-author steve martin to the show bye for now